0: The opinions expressed in this episode are my own and not necessarily shared by Terry Crandall or Voting Smarter. During our interview, we did not talk at any length about the moral majority. The connections I make between our conversation and the influence of the past are my own and not intended to be representative of the positions of Voting Smarter. So
1: let me put in some random address. Uh, West Washington... There's a cool district in Arizona where there's a, an astronaut running and I like this yes. picture. So, uh, <laughs> let's see. I mean, if I was an astronaut, I'd, I'd use that picture for uh, my, my Senate campaign as well.
0: I'd use it for everything.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'd be like, um, sir, you're at the DMV. Why are you in a space suit? <laughs> so nice. let's let's get started. So uh, the, the federal government's response to COVID-19 was appropriate, okay? So if I disagree with that, I can swipe it off to the left. I can swipe it off to the right. If I agree with that, if I really strongly agree, I can go up or I can go down.
0: Nice. So it just looks like a little stack of cards there. That is cool.
1: Exactly. It's a stack of cards designed to look uh, like uh, cards against humanity, sort of. So it sort of has that familiar. Yeah, um, it made so, it feel
0: like it's a game.
1: Exactly. And, and look, I think any successful app uh, can gamify. Uh, and make you wanna keep going. And so that's one of the reasons we chose this interface. So let's say I disagree with that. Uh, We ask you about abortion, right? And so I'm just gonna answer these randomly so we can go through quickly. Sure. Right. So I'll just switch right and left, right? So guns, taxes, size of the military, cannabis, climate change, uh, trade, uh, criminal justice, uh, you know, systematic racism, um, the federal debt
0: so that was that was probably what, like 15 questions give or take yeah it's
1: it's, it's one question on issues and then 15 specific questions one on each okay right yeah yeah um, so then you hit calculate and the algorithm figures out you know who matches me well randomly selecting it, it says i'm a 67% match with joe biden a 60% match with donald trump a 56% match with Joe Jorgensen, the Libertarian, and a 51% match with Howie Hawkins.
0: The green- this is Terry Crandall. He's an economist, a professor at Loyola Marymount, father of twins, mixes in some real estate there, entrepreneur, and he's the CEO of a company called Voting Smarter. He's giving me a guided tour of their flagship product, a Tinder-like matchmaking app. But instead of leading you to a hot date, it's designed to show you which political candidates most closely align to your own positions
1: none of this is scraped from the internet like our some of our competitors right they'll just scrape like ballotopedia or they'll try and scrape uh, the candidates websites Mm -hmm. but really um, we had um, individual researchers go in and research each candidate their stances we tried to base it off their public statements their voting records and their campaign uh, websites Um, it's actually really hard work to do especially for some of the house candidates a lot of them don't even have websites it's it's really strange how little some some people who are running for for the House of Representatives campaign. Um, we also use people who are researching Republicans. We try and use Democrats, and then we have Republicans review their work, right? So so we have a really diverse team, and we've tried to put in these these uh, uh you know bias robustness checks, uh, trying to trying to eliminate our conscious. I mean everybody on
0: bias robustness checks. I like that. I'm keeping it. I've known Terry for years, pretty close to decades actually. When it comes to politics, Terry watches them like a lot of people watch football. He's yelling at the screen, cheering, tracking stats, the works. When it became clear that I was going to do an episode around politics, he was the first person I wanted to talk with. After he showed me around voting smarter, we settled down for an interview. My first question was, why on earth would you want to work in politics? His answer? It took the better part of an hour and a half. In that time, he covered any question I had hoped to ask about the state of politics, political discourse, and some suggestions on how we can fix it. Then coming to a close, he leaned back in his chair, took a sip of his drink, and he said, I think anyway. He truly is passionate. So in the moments following, I'll play several snippets from my single question interview with Terry Crandall, CEO of Voting Smarter. But first let me set the scene. It was early November the day after the election. America was looking at the election results with a collective sense of shock. The nation was starting to look forward to the inauguration of its new leader. Some with anticipation, many with dread if we're being honest. The popular vote was surprisingly close, and it was not the kind of decisive victory that makes the results unquestionable, rather it was the kind of victory that makes the losing side angry instead of sad. But they weren't angry because they lost. Part of that anger was because the nation had elected a political outsider. He was the kind of candidate who promised less of the political business as usual. He lacked substantive experience. He was able to capitalize off the fact that his opponent was untrusted, his opponent was polarizing, his opponent was steeped in controversy, and his opponent simply rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Still with all of that, most people actually thought his opponent would win. And there was one more thing that happened. The Christian church bought into his promises big time, and they mobilized. They were all too happy to overlook his shortcomings. Sure he lacked experience and polish, none of that was important. They as a singular voting voice banded together to propel this man to victory in their usual states. You know the ones I'm talking about, the section of the country known as the Bible Belt. Texas, Louisiana, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, the Carolinas, a few other southern states. They came together and helped propel this man to victory. By now I'm sure you've put two and two together and have a pretty good idea of who I'm talking about. Christianity have found its political voice and exerted a huge influence over the election to propel into office the new President of the United States of America, Mr. James Earl Carter Jr., affectionately known as Jimmy, a Democrat. Hello, hello, I'm Gabriel Creek, and welcome to episode three of Strange Bedfellows, my podcast where I explore what happens when two seemingly oppositional things try to occupy the same place at the same time. Can they coexist? Well, let's find out. My first few episodes are surrounding matters of faith. I'm exploring what happens when the spiritual world and the physical world collide. This is the first in a two-part series about faith and politics. I tried to put it all into a single show, but there's just too much there. So this episode I'm taking a pretty deep dive into the pressure that's put on us to vote a certain way by certain demographics. You hear it all the time. Candidate A is really popular among non-college educated people. Candidate B is not polling well among women. And since this is the faith and politics episode, I'm going to focus on the pressure that Christians put on each other to vote the right way. Then, in my next episode, I'm going to talk about faith and political discourse. We as a society have become disturbingly prone to shouting each other down when we don't see eye to eye politically. So next episode, I'm going to opine that the faith community can really lead the charge toward changing how we talk to each other, which will be a difficult case to make because it's often us religious folks who are the worst offenders. You know the term separation of church and state? Over the next two episodes, I'm gonna throw that out the window. I'm gonna take the state and the church and mash them all together. And they say you shouldn't discuss religion and politics? Well, I'm about to discuss both at once. I'm sensing that some of you listening out there are already afraid that I'm going to spend this episode trying to convince you that you're wrong. Well, that's true, but not in the way you might be thinking. I have zero interest in trying to convince you conservatives that you should switch to being liberals. I have no desire to convince you lefties that you should start trending to the right. In fact, I don't want to change your mind about anything at all. for real. Okay, there's one thing, but it's not what you're expecting, and the best way I can think of to maybe change your mind about this one thing is to start from where the church got all mixed up in politics, because that's my first real experience with the political mentality of my way or the highway. As usual, I'll begin the episode with my biases. I'm a Christian, and when I talk about matters of faith, it's almost always from the Christian perspective, because that's what I know best. I do try to make it broadly applicable for more than just Christians, or at least interesting. We'll see how that goes. Politically, I'm a centrist. In most ways, I don't align with either of the major parties. Sometimes I align with both parties. But I have trouble accepting that all ideas come from one side of the aisle, and the other side is the enemy of America. In essence, what this means is I get called an idiot by both parties, quite a bit, actually. And bearing my idiocy in mind, I'm going to continue with the story I started a few minutes ago, because it's the middle of October and the election is looming, Trump versus Biden. It's another election in which Christianity promises to play a pivotal role. But it's a little different this time, because since the election of Jimmy Carter, the Christian vote has really coalesced into a real political force. It has a name now, Evangelicals, or the Christian right. But where did that come from, this profound political clout? Continuing the story from where we left off, the 1976 victory of Jimmy Carter was a catalyst. It was a realization that Christianity could really be mobilized into a powerful force. And no one was more aware of that than the Reverend Jerry Falwell. Not the guy that has had some unfortunate news coverage lately. We're talking about Jerry Falwell Sr., his dad. Jerry Falwell was the lead pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. He was a televangelist who enjoyed a really rather large following. Falwell believed that the nation was in moral decline, so in 1979 he did something unexpected. He moved into the political arena. What's interesting is that this represented a departure from his beliefs. As a fundamentalist, political involvement went against his moral convictions. Fundamentalists who are different than evangelicals tend towards separation from the entanglements of the political world. They were so serious about it that they even stayed away from other Christians who didn't share their particular emphasis on theological and personal and social purity. So right off the bat, Falwell's move into politics required a compromise in his personal convictions. He moved from a separatist stance that taught that God controls everything including politics to one that required human action to fulfill God's destiny for America. And he seems to have made that shift in his perspective really pretty quickly. He founded what was called the Moral Majority. The Moral Majority was a direct reaction to the Carter administration. It was a movement created from a desire to return to traditional principles. Family values, anti-abortion, government overreach, and surprisingly, maintaining racial segregation in schools. Yeah, I just said that correctly. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Now I feel like I have to put into context that Falwell would do this during the administration of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was outspoken in his Christian faith. During his campaign, he often invoked the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who said, the sad duty of politics is to establish justice in a sinful world, and most voters weren't used to this kind of faith-inflected speech. He described himself as born again, which was also a new term to most voters. He was a staunch family man, having married Rosalind Carter when she was 18 and he was 21. They're still married to this day. It's been over 74 years at this point. Hashtag relationship goals. Jimmy Carter was arguably one of the most moral people ever to take up the mantle of president, so it's almost ironic that it would be morality that was weaponized against him. So while Jimmy Carter was living by his morals, Jerry Falwell was stepping away from his in order to oppose him. Nowhere was this more obvious than his decision to back Carter's political opponent in the next election, Ronald Reagan. Reagan was just about as unlike Carter as he could be. Reagan was a Hollywood actor He rarely attended church. He was twice married, had a strained relationship with his kids. He had even enacted one of the nation's most liberal abortion laws a few years earlier as governor of California. Now don't misunderstand, I'm not saying that Ronald Reagan was a bad person. By all accounts, he was quite the opposite, but what I am suggesting here is that his lifestyle was not really up to the standard that you'd expect from a fundamentalist minister to endorse. But here's the thing, though. Just as Falwell saw an opportunity in Reagan, Reagan also saw how the church helped propel Carter into office. He watched that mob turn into a real force under the guidance of Falwell. So during his 1980 campaign, he openly began courting Falwell's moral majority. Now before we get into that courting process let's go backwards one more time because if you are going to claim the moral high ground on the national stage that deserves some scrutiny. Before Jerry Falwell founded the official group there was a man who originally coined the term moral majority, conservative political activist Paul Wyrick. The entire evangelical movement can really trace its origins back to his efforts. Even in the 60s and 70s, Weirich had long recognized the potential of the church to be a political force. He once said, if the moral majority acts, results could well exceed our wildest dreams. And try to get that moral majority to act is something that he worked on very hard. But he was missing the key ingredient that's necessary in mobilizing a political movement, a watershed issue to rally around. But it wasn't for lack of trying. He floated all kinds of ideas to grab the attention of this sleeping voting block. He tried pornography, prayer in schools, the proposed Equal Rights Amendment, even abortion, and nothing stuck. The church just wasn't really very keen on getting political. But then something happened in the courts. William H. Green had lodged a complaint in the courts that made its way to the district court in Washington, D.C. The complaint? schools that practice segregation should not get tax benefits. I'll spare you the details of the case and make the long story short. The district court agreed, and that put a whole lot of government wills in action. Suddenly the IRS was poking its unwelcome nose into the business practices of private schools and universities, and a very significant portion of which were Christian schools. They were auditing the school's admissions processes with a very real threat of invalidating their tax-exempt status. For a lot of these universities, that would pretty much mean financial ruin, and the whole affair caught the attention of many evangelical leaders because private Christian schools and universities were proliferating at that time. When Jerry Falwell got the notice that his own private school was under review, he was furious. And then along came Bob Jones University. They received their letter from the IRS and they pushed back. They pushed back on the grounds that racial segregation was biblical, and they weren't going to cooperate. Well, the IRS wasn't having that. If Bob Jones University was gonna push back citing the very thing that the IRS was looking for, well, the IRS was gonna push forward. Realizing that they were outgunned in this fight, Bob Jones University eventually tried to placate the IRS by admitting exactly one black person, part-time. The IRS obviously was not impressed. They made good on their threat, and in 1975, they pulled Bob Jones University's tax-exempt status. Now that was exactly the opportunity that Wyrick and Falwell needed. And they teamed up and pounced. The two of them worked tirelessly to change the narrative of what had happened. They were not going to try to stand up to the IRS for cracking down against a racist university with racist policies that promoted racist racism. No way that would never fly. So here's what they did. They united to stand up against government overreach. Bob Jones University was the victim here. They weren't punished because they were racist. They were punished because the government didn't like them. And if the government can do it to them, they can do it to anybody. Bob Jones University was all of us. Oh, and by the way, pay no attention to the fact that all this happened before the Carter administration was even around, under the very Republican administrations of Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Ignore that. It's not important. So, incorrectly invalidating the tax-exempt status of a school with immoral, racist practices, the IRS became the spark, and the flames of Falwell's moral majority began to glow.
1: I had the angry conservative phase, right, where I was in everybody's face and arguing with, looking for edification that I was right, and and the more I studied, the more I, you know, I realized. Um, I tried to figure out why I think what I think and why politics matters. And I got really mad at the system. I blamed politicians for being corrupt. I blamed voters for being lazy and apathetic and disengaged. And I got jaded. And I mean, obviously I'm cynical already because I'm an economist and mm. it just teaches you to be cynical. And <laughs> right when you, when, you, when you think like an economist and analyze political behavior from the, the lens of incentives, things start to really come clear. Right. It it changed my mind. The resentment went away, right? It absolved politicians and voters from my disdain because I understood now that they were merely following their incentives, right? If you want to be in the house of representatives in a contested district, right? About 15 to 20% of them are contested. Uh, if you wanna be in, in the house in one of those districts, you have to spend 18 months of your two-year term fundraising for the next election. Wow. And so, and the reason that is, is because people believe the silly ads they get in the mail and that they see on the TV, right? We wouldn't get mm-hmm. junk mail if it didn't work. Right. When I worked for the McCain campaign, what I saw is I was like, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready to make phone calls. Give me the list of people who don't wanna vote for John. I'm like, no, 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 here's the list of people who do want to vote for John. And I was like, no, that's, that's not what I'm good at. Let me change some people's minds, which I probably wasn't good at either, but uh, they're like, no, 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 we don't do that. We just call the people we know like us and we try and get them to show up. It's called GOTV, get out the vote, right? The incentives to be in office, the way it's set up, you have to play this game where you have to fundraise, you have to be in bed with lobbyists. You have to do this thing, do these things because people aren't paying attention. And to be an informed voter,
0: you have to play this game where you have to fundraise. You have to be in bed with lobbyists. You have to do these things because people aren't paying attention. So you don't try to convince new people to join you in so much as you try to fire up the people who have already joined you. You take some bait and switch, discard some details, mix it all in with a little spin. Playing that game is exactly what Wyrick and Falwell did. Why? Because the people weren't really paying attention. So much so, in fact, that Wyrick and Falwell had carte blanche to convince the Christian right of what things they should be passionate about. Take abortion, for example. It's the centerpiece of the evangelical platform. When the Supreme Court handed down a decision on Roe v. Wade, it hit the Christian community with all the impact of a wet paper towel. A few Christian voices rose up against it. A surprising aspect is how many Christians spoke up in support of it, particularly in the Southern Baptist camp. But the overwhelming Christian response was silence. The church wasn't really paying attention. But they were following the leads of people like Paul Weyrich and Jerry Falwell. And right, wrong, or indifferent, abortion was important to them. So now it's a huge part of the platform today. Bear with me. Don't tune me out just yet. I'm not making any judgment calls about whether abortion is an extremely important issue. I'm only pointing out that the way abortion status as the centerpiece of the evangelical platform was achieved is just a little suspect. So let's get back to the campaign of Ronald Reagan, who is no stranger to playing the game. He's actively looking for the right lobbyists to attract, and Falwell is looking to rid the nation of the scourge of the Carter administration. It was an obvious match, so Reagan started the public courting of the Moral Majority, who's not a movement anymore, but an actual legal organization under the leadership of Jerry Falwell. They've settled on their key issues. They've convinced their entire following that these are the most important issues that the church can possibly face. Ronald Reagan openly campaigns with high-profile members of the Moral Majority. He invites the Moral Majority's executive director, Robert Billings, to serve as an advisor in his campaign. Reagan had evangelicals giving speeches at the GOP convention, including the person giving the keynote address, Congressman Guy Vanderyek of Michigan, an evangelical conservative. One soundbite that received a lot of attention by the media was Reagan saying, I know you can't endorse me, but I want you to know that I endorse you. And with that, the deal was sealed. The rest is history. The moral majority helps propel Reagan into office in a landslide referendum against Carter's policies. Reverend Jerry Falwell becomes Reverend Jerry Falwell, kingmaker, and both American Christianity and American politics would be changed to this day. The moral majority was officially disbanded in 1989, over 30 years ago, but their agenda is still front and center in what's now known as the Christian right. That was a whole lot to take in, so let me summarize. A couple of men saw what they considered to be the decline of morality in the U.S., so they decided to act. In order to act, at least one of them had to go against his convictions to step into the political arena. They tried to rally the church by highlighting issue after issue with no nibbles. Then they finally found their footing by coming to the defense of a school that was proudly practicing racism. Knowing that was wrong and wouldn't be popular, they put the whole ordeal through a propaganda spin cycle and turned it into a government overreach issue about the party that wasn't even in power at the time. With their core audience finally awake, but not terribly engaged, they emphasized their other concerns—abortion, family values, opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. They then did the very thing they told their followers not to do. They became unequally yoked—that's Christianese for partnering with an unbeliever—with a representative who ostensibly did not live by any of their standards. They built their moral majority, and all it took was compromising on their morals little cover up here, a little reframing the narrative there, a whole lot of PR, and no one will ever question the fact that this appeal to morality was built on the foundation of questionable moral choices.
1: I think anywhere, in any of the, in any of the, the major religions of, of the world, when you start mixing humanity into these things, they, they, they wreck it. Correct. <laughs> I mean, and if, if you're Christian, yeah. it explains by being fallen. And every, you know, if we're touching it, we're probably blowing it. There's only one judge if you're a Christian mm-hmm. and it's not you, right? It's the God, it's God almighty. Right. Okay. And so the, the church of our youth, the, the born again Christian movement of the eighties, nineties and aughts um, really focused on some of those core issues that you talked about or whether it was abortion, or, or gay marriage, or these wedge mm. issues, and tried to be monolithic in how um, it voted. And, and I think...
0: Now, if you're like me, this is pretty mind-blowing. I grew up in the church, and I'm incredibly familiar with the agenda of the Christian right. But no one ever told me how the agenda became the agenda. It's just generally accepted that these are the things that are important to us as Christians. Today, It's my sincere hope that knowing that the entire agenda of the Christian right is built on shaky foundations will give you something that you didn't even know you were missing. Freedom. Let me explain. 30 years later, when you look at the issues that drive the political leanings of the church, nothing has changed. Sure the moral majority is gone, physically anyway, but its spirit is alive and well. It's a fascinating experiment to google phrases like social issues in the church or Christianity and politics. Whatever article you read, the topics that they'll attempt to tackle over and over again are government overreach, although we call it religious freedom now, abortion, traditional family, almost to the exclusion of all else. These issues remain elevated to the point where if you disagree with the official evangelical stance, there are those in the church who will call your faith into question, not outright. It comes up in a much more passive-aggressive tone during conversations. It goes a bit like this. I'll say, in my political opinion, I think smooth peanut butter is the way to go. My conversation partner will respond with, you can't believe that and still call yourself a Christian. There are those that will even cut off their relationship with someone who lands anywhere to the left of the Christian right. It happened to me fairly recently. I was in a conversation that I admit was heated and very political. The result of that conversation was the person informing me that I had embraced the liberal agenda, whatever that means and then they cut off all lines of communication. And odds are pretty good that I'll see that person at a family reunion. Awkward. Responses like this as a consequence to not espousing the evangelical platform have always been weird to me because the Bible's made up of 66 different books consisting of a 1189 chapters and a total of 31,102 verses. Surely there's got to be something in there besides the three core social issues. I mean, I'm not aware of the Bible actually saying anything about government overreach. But I definitely know that Jesus, when asked what commandment was the greatest, replied love God first, and secondly to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. I don't think it's a stretch to love your black neighbors by putting people into office who will ensure that all races receive equal treatment under the law. I mean, it kind of sounds like it's the second most important thing behind loving God himself. Then there's the book of James that tells us to look after the orphans and the widows and admonishes us to care for the poor. When it comes down to it, caring for the poor is actually mentioned over a hundred times in the Bible. That makes it seem like it's a pretty important task. The government has set up programs to do exactly this. In fact, you could make an argument that the government is actually better positioned than the church to do these things on a large scale. Is there room to consider voting for someone who also thinks that caring for the poor is important? Not if you're listening to the Christian right. The evangelical platform dedicates almost no time or attention to caring for the less fortunate don't get me wrong the church has been absolutely instrumental in care for the homeless and the sick but it hasn't been a priority to push these values into the political arena but you can okay here it is in the beginning of the episode i told you that i didn't want to change your mind about anything as far as your political leanings but i did say i wanted to convince you of one thing and this is that moment Now you know that the core political stance of the evangelicals was really just the platform of a couple of guys who were unhappy with the societal changes in the 60s and 70s. If the group who literally tried to claim total ownership of the moral high ground turned out to be just another group of politicians playing the political game, now you have freedom. Freedom to choose exactly what's important to you and vote accordingly. I want to convince you that you can take up stances and issues that are different from or even contrary to what you've been told to support. Your reasons behind your positions are at least as good as Wyrick and Falwell's reasons. I think it's safe to say that your methods at arriving at your opinions are almost assuredly less questionable than theirs. So that means that you can vote how you want, and it's okay. It's more than okay. It's how our whole political system is supposed to work. Now, I realize I'm probably making some people really upset right now, And if that's you, before you tune me out, give me just one more minute to say something. It is not my intention to speak out against any of the core issues on the Christian right. If you consider government overreach to be one of the most important things that you can vote on, please keep that as your priority. This is a very important issue and it needs its champions. I don't want you to change anything, not at all. What I am asking is that you search your heart and really consider the why of your political positions. Is this something that's really, truly important to you? If it is, get out there and support it enthusiastically. I may not agree with you or place the same priority on it, but I will be fully supportive of your pursuit of what matters to you. But if government overreach is important to you because people have told you that it should be your priority and you've just never stopped to question that, if that's the case, stop and ask yourself why. And then ask yourself what it is that you really are passionate about. Is there something else about society that you want to see defended or changed from the very core of your being? Then I want you to find that thing and do something about it. You're free. If those in your political and social circles don't agree with you, that's okay. You're free. There's no requirement to have the same political opinions as your peers or demographic groups or even your affiliated party. You know why? Because you're free. And when you accept that you're free, you give yourself permission to do you politically. Not only that, but I contend that once you realize your political freedom, you'll be more willing to extend it to those around you. You'll give your friends, family, acquaintances, and coworkers, the space and grace to do what's right for them.
1: Social media has made us less secure in ourselves, more insecure. And so, um, that, then that insecurity then gets projected on our political or our religious, or whatever thing we tie onto for our ideology that defines who we are. And, and so part of this is statism and politics has replaced religion as a meaningful life, right? You have a lot on the left who are, who believe in science and evolution over religion, and then look to politics and the state as sort of that team that they're on. Mm -hmm. And so it takes that same ideology as faith right? If you don't believe as I believe you are immoral, you're not Mm. incorrect. It's not, it's not the wrong. That's what got flipped, right? It's not you're wrong, meaning you're incorrect. It's you're wrong, meaning you're immoral, right? If you think that marriage is between a man and a woman, that's an immoral position. If you're on one side and if you, if you believe it's whoever should be able to get married, should be able to get married. That's immoral from the other side. Right? It's, it's a moral right. position. Instead of, we can't give anyone the grace to be wrong.
0: Okay, so now what? We've got all this freedom, but what do I do with it? How do I exercise it? I would say the first step is to get informed. The world of politics is expansive. And there's so much that you need to know in order to be an effective, informed voter. You have to get well-versed in seeing what's real and what's not. Misinformation is everywhere. Propaganda is Plentiful opinions abound, truths, partial truths, complete fabrications, advice from uninformed people, advice from overly informed people. And then there's great Uncle Joe, who, in no uncertain terms, tells you what your political opinion is. You get helpful direction from your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your partner, your mom, your dad, your own preconceived notions. The list goes on and on. How do you cut through the noise? It's time for one of those bias robustness checks. So what if I don't like who I got matched up with? Yeah,
1: so that's that's really interesting. We we've recently been thinking about that. I watched a, a pundit, uh, a uh, a polling expert talking about the vice presidential debate last night, and he was talking that like talking he was saying that likability is way more important than issue stances.
0: Oh well, yeah, yeah, I can see that.
1: And I'm infuriated by that idea, right? That's that's right. taking a blind vote right? Like millions of people chose George W. Bush over Al Gork because by their words, they'd rather have a beer with him. Right. In 2000. Yeah. And I get that, right? Until that. Al Gore yeah. was on Saturday Night sure. Live. He's very funny on that, by the way. <laughs> I, I wanted to have a beer with Bush uh, myself. Ironically, he's sober. So that would be like a one-sided <laughs> drinking session. But uh, I think I get that, but that's not a good predictor, right? I remember- right.
0: When it comes to getting informed, one of the very first things that people tend to do is go out and search the Googles. They'll type in the name of a politician or the issue that they're researching. And then when their search results come up, their eyes immediately zero in on the articles, sites, whatever that confirm the opinion that they already had. Those headlines just pop right off the page. It's like magic, but it's not magic. It's design. That's how propaganda works. And propaganda does indeed work. More about that next episode. So when it comes to cutting through the noise, I'm going to give you a couple of tools. The first tool that I'm going to give you is really simple. It's three little letters, W-H-Y. Ask that about everything. I just Googled something important and instantly gravitated toward the articles that confirm my opinions. Why? Then take some time to read the articles on the page that didn't pop. The ones that cast your opinion in a less favorable light, and ask why. Then read another article that agrees with you, then read another article that disagrees with you, and ask why the whole time. But when you ask why, ask it honestly with an attempt to get a real answer. Why is this person who disagreed with me so stupid? That question's not going to get you anywhere. A better question is, why did this person use the same information that I had to draw an entirely different conclusion? If you look for the answer to that, you might actually get somewhere. And with all of that, you're probably going to get through exactly one issue or candidate real research takes a lot of work and time and commitment and energy. And if you're like me, you don't have a whole lot of those types of resources to spread around, which is why I'm going to give a gratuitous plug to voting smarter to use as your second tool.
1: We make mistakes. There's probably a five, 5% error rate. We go through, we checked it all. We went through it again. You know, we've. Uh, I was just talking to my head of research, and he just sent me the the number. Um, how many hours we've put in researching these candidates, and it's just over thirty eight hundred hours. Wow. Now, as a, as a voter, you don't have to spend 3,800 hours to be informed because you didn't have to research every district of the House, every, every race in the Senate and the governors. Uh, but it is hours upon hours of research that we turn in to a couple minutes. There's this theory called rational ignorance. And I usually use Tinder versus getting married to explain it, right? So if you're showing up on a blind date, or, or essentially what is an electronic blind date, a Tinder date, uh, maybe you've seen a picture of them and, and some stuff they don't really care about, but tell you they care about And, uh, you swipe on it, but you don't go and you don't, you don't stalk them on social media. Uh, you don't try and meet their friends and go to their work and you you don't, you don't find anything about them. You go meet them at a coffee shop. And if you're a guy, right, you only swipe in one direction, right? It's the law of averages. So, uh, the, I mean, or so I'm told, right. Right. honey, (laughs) If you're listening. Uh, and so. The, the idea that people just show up for a date without doing any research or finding out anything really substantive about this person makes sense. It's rational to be ignorant because you're just going for a coffee or a drink or a meal. Sure. And uh, But you wouldn't marry someone like that. You wouldn't right. just show up and get married at the courthouse unless, of right. course, you're on 90 Day Fiance. And so, <laughs> so what we're trying to do is stop, you know, Trying to stop people treating voting like a blind date, like a Mm. one-off moment, and realizing that these are long-term relationships. They last two years, four years, six years, eight years. John Lewis was in the House for 35 years. Wow. Joe Biden has been in government for 47 years. These are long-term relationships.
0: When it comes to researching, there are resources out there that have done a lot of that work for you. Voting Smarter is one that I recommend. And no, they did not ask me to endorse them. I just really like how hard they try to be fair. It's those bias robustness checks. You, of course, are free to choose one more to your liking if voting smarter doesn't do it for you. My recommendation on that would be that you try hard to find resources that emphasize giving the straight, unbiased facts. Next episode, I'm going to talk about how social media has really had a negative influence on how we dialogue with each other. But right now, I want to point out that there are companies out there who are using technology to undo that damage. Voting smarter is one. I encourage you to check them out.
1: We've decided that, no, 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 I'm right. I'm going to live in my confirmation bias bubble. I'm going to read the newspapers that agree with me. I'm going to ignore the newspapers that that, that disagree with me because I don't like how that feels. And I'm just going to get more insular Mm -hmm. and more obstinate and less empathetic. And all that does is make you more wrong. Because um, there is no political philosophy that's completely right. Right. There, or else we'd all believe it. Yeah. You know, I, I, it would be proven. You could show that trickle-down economics works or socialism works, right? If, if they always worked, we'd have the one that always will.
0: Right, right.
1: If you want to explore an issue and say, look, I feel this way and you feel this way, I'd really like to understand why we feel differently. That's a political conversation. What political conversations are now is, no, this is why you're wrong. You're wrong, mom. You're wrong, son.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm right. And, and, and that's only based on insecurity. But certainty is is not something we have because there is no proven system. And so uh, and we all know it. Right. And it's it's that it's knowing that it's not proven that makes us insecure about it that makes us attack. Right. I think. Anyway.
0: It's my earnest hope that and it's weird for me to say this. I hope that I haven't convinced you to change your mind about any of your political leanings. Why? Because they're yours and nobody else's. The Christian right doesn't have the moral high ground. They don't have to live with the fact that you voted for or against anything. You do. And that's what makes it so important to know your why when you vote. Hopefully you don't take this as disparaging the people on the Christian right. My point is that it's so easy to take things for granted. I've been a Christian my entire life and I had no idea where the evangelical platform came from. It's just always been. I know that there's a good portion of the Christian right whose vote is purely based on the idea that this is the way Christians are supposed to vote. Mom and dad voted this way. Grandpa voted this way. They didn't know their why, so they voted according to somebody else's why. But it's not the way Christians have always done it. One time, they voted for a Democrat. And that was okay. But I think, anyway. Special thanks to Terry Crandall from Voting Smarter. I invite you to give Voting Smarter a closer look. You can find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all under Voting Smarter, or go to their website at votingsmarter.org. Their podcast is Pocket Politics. You can find it on Spotify and most of the major podcast sites. You should check it out.